difference it will make. Psalm 91, verse 9 and 10. Psalm 91, verse 9 and 10. Thank you for being here today. Thank you to those that are joining us either live or uh, later on with a video recording. Um, thank you for understanding the constant changing conditions. Psalm 91, verse 9, the Bible says, Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Because you made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, your habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Amen. I feel led of the Lord to share with you a phrase that leaped off the pages at me just yesterday. And I believe it would be the will of God for me to share with you today. I speak to you today from this phrase, have you made the Lord? Have you made the Lord? Let's pray. Mighty God, we come before you right now believing that as we have worshipped in spirit and in truth, as we have gathered together in your name, that you are here in the middle of us. Oh Lord, that you inhabit the praises of this people and you I believe, have a word for the Refuge Church to hear. We ask that you would feed the flock of God. I am available as your servant. Let me be a, become a mouthpiece. Lord, as your spirit leads to speak your words and not my own, I want to preach the word of the Lord and help us to hear it, help us have the hearts receive it, and hands ready to apply it. We love you. We give your name all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Oh, before we're seated, why don't we give the Lord an awesome hand clap of praise and give him a great shout. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. All right. We need the mains to be on. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. All right, so Psalm 91, verse 9, Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High. There are going to be three things that I bring to you today. and I'll speak regarding each one. And those three things are this. Some, some say that man made God. Some, secondly, some say that we can make God. But thirdly, I am here today to say that we must make God. Again, one, some say that man made God. Others say that we can make God, but I'm here today to say that we must make God. First and foremost, some say that man made God. There are some who would like to convince our children and our young people that to believe in a creator is nothing more than to believe in a fairy tale, that it is a crutch for the weak or simple-minded. It is 
a figment of man's creative imagination. The atheists in classrooms of public or of higher education would attempt to explain to their students that faith in any deity or the idea that the world would be formed by a creator with intelligent design or the belief in a higher power is nothing more than primitive man's way of explaining the unknown in previous eras of human history. They would say and attempt to convince you that man has, since the days of the Dark Ages, man has progressed to such a degree in science, information, and technology that we can now understand and we could explain things that previous generations could not. So they think, or so they say. Of course, the irony behind this case that they attempt to make is that if primitive men are the ones who conjured up such an idea, and furthermore, they would say that primitive man would be coming to us with a less educated position, would it not be a marvel that such a primitive book with such ignorant ideas could still stand today and attract the attention of the brightest minds in the known world to devote their entire lives to study such a book authored by such primitive man. Students of scripture believe that the oldest of the 66 books found in the canon of scripture in our Bibles, the oldest dated book, that means when it was written, the oldest book in your Bible, most would say, is the book of Job. The book of Job. From this book, consider this message. From Job chapter 2, verse 6, until Job 38, verse 2, we will find a total absence of God's voice in 897 verses of Scripture. Many of you already know the story of Job. Job, as Satan would deploy on his life, would be bombarded with all sort of afflictions, losing his livestock, losing his wealth, losing his children, losing his health, and even the relationship with the one he was closest to, his wife, be put in jeopardy. Now when the dialogue ensues between Job and his friends, it revolves around very basic things. Job's friends attempt to convince Job that the only explanation of his plight and affliction is the fact that Job must have sinned. That Job must have done something terribly wrong, some secret sin that lied beneath the surface. And that was the only explanation of Job's plight and affliction. Job, on the other hand, maintains his innocence. And he wants so badly to hear a word from the Lord. 
like Brother Walker had said earlier. He wanted to hear a word from God that would vindicate him, that would straighten it all out. In fact, he was wanting to hear from God to say that he was innocent. And if he was innocent, that God would acquit him. But if he was guilty, then at least God would tell him what his offense was so that he could confess it, change, and maybe end all of this suffering. Are you with me? Say amen. But this is not what God does when he finally shows up in Job 38 and verse 2 and begins to speak. When God finally speaks, he changes the subject content entirely. And he begins to talk about the wonders of the world which he had created. How he alone had formed the earth, gave the seas their boundaries, carved out the valleys, stretched out the heavens like a curtain, and even controls the wind, the rain, the snow, and the hail. All through, all through this speech, God reminds Job, using what almost comes across as a sarcastic tone, that mere humans, mere mortal man, could never accomplish any of these things. Could you? Could you? Could you? Where were you, Job? Where was man? So what is the purpose of this creation conversation that God gives to Job? This, this lecture that God gives, what's the purpose of it? When Job is sitting in a heap of ashes and scraping his boils with broken pottery and his friends bring not comfort but misery what is the purpose of God's rebuke and to talk about creation you see Job remains in the dark about why why he or any human should ever suffer in such a way as often happens, we form questions for God. And when the answer comes from God, it does not deal directly with the questions that we raise. But perhaps, perhaps the questions were unanswerable to begin with. I know that's going to hurt your brain for some of us. The thought that there are questions that we may have that cannot be answered. But the most common understanding of God's response to Job is exactly that very point. That Job and his friends have been trying to answer a question that they can never solve. And so there are mysteries beyond human comprehension, such as how to make the world. And also how to explain suffering to hurting people. Job is advised to recognize his human limitations and to trust that God will take care of what Job and others cannot know and they cannot do. That's God's job. Some will say that's God's job. You see, if it is man, if it is man that formed and made up God in this manner, then who is greater? The God the created idea that they profess we believe in? Or the man who created the idol? The man who created the idea? See, that's the point. That therein lies the real reason. 
Because atheistic man would like to convince the world that God is a man-made idea. And if it is believed, then man is superior and man therefore is God. And man falls trap and prey to the same original sin that Lucifer the high angel would fall into where he would make himself as God and take the very throne. So man did not make God. But some say that we can make God. Hear me out. Some believers have walked dangerously close to claiming authority over the sovereign. And surely, most who do so, do with good intentions, with a zeal that is clouded with ignorance, thinking that you and I can make God do something that he does not want to do. Or anything for that matter. That we can somehow twist God's arm and make God do something. They think that we could, we could just pray enough. We could, we could fast enough. We could, we could live holy or strict enough lives that we could then put God into a position that he must do what we want him to do. This thinking, of course, is faulty on so many levels. For starters, you would have to think that the Lord is unwilling and unloving in the first place. Hear me out. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 10. God says, You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. And listen to how the text starts. God says you are my witnesses. You have seen you have tasted that I am good. That I alone can save you. That I alone have created you. God goes on to say, I have declared, I have saved, I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses. Look at your neighbor and say you're a witness. You are a witness. You are a witness. Listen, and you really don't have any choice in the matter. Just you sitting upright and breathing and living and seeing and thinking. You are witnesses that there is a creator who has brought about all that we see by intelligent design. You are his witnesses that he can declare, that he can save, that he can show himself strong, that there is no other God beside our God. He goes on to say in Isaiah 43, and he says in verse 13, Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver you out of my hand. I will work, and who shall, who shall let it? You see, some say that we can make God. Make God do something. Make God perform perform at our beck and call or our command but I'm here to tell you that that idea needs to be cast out of our imaginations and our mind and you need to start with the basis and the foundation that you serve a God who wants to work and he's just looking for someone to work through someone clap your hands unto the Lord and give him praise Oh, hallelujah. 
or hallelujah. Someone shout amen. Come on, you can shout amen while I'm preaching. Don't let David Overcash be the only one preaching with me. He's the newest person that's coming to church, and he's out preaching all of you. I can't hear you. Someone shout amen. Someone shout hallelujah. Am I in the right church? Am I in the refuge church? Am I in a spirit-filled church? Someone shout amen. Listen, we cannot come with the idea that we can make God do something. God doesn't need to be made to do anything. He wants to work. He wants to perform. He wants to show his wonder. He wants to show off his power. But he is looking for a blood Part spirit-filled group of believers that will say, God, you can work through me. You can speak through me. You can live through me. Somebody shout yes. You see, unbelievers have sought to challenge the church with questions that seem sincere and sometimes even on the surface harmless enough on the surface. But God, listen, God has the power and the prerogative to say no. So the next time some agnostic or atheist or just some well-meaning person would like to get you to back up into a corner and question about whether or not God is a loving God, God is a merciful God, God is an acting God, God is a powerful God, I need you to understand that God has the right to say no at any time in any place or anywhere he does not have to do what I say or even what I pray he doesn't have to he's not subject to my word he is not subject to my demands or commands he could say no. And to be quite honest, I am so thankful that he has declined my request on more than a few occasions. You need to understand with me that this Bible is not a magic wand. Our prayers are not spells. That if we say just the right words, that we could have the desired results that they could be expected. Hear me very clear. You could just read the short story in Acts chapter 19 about seven individuals that perhaps had good intentions that came to a spirit-possessed man and tried to cast him out in the name of Jesus. That Jesus whom Paul preaches. But they had no relationship. They had no covenant relationship with that same Jesus. And so what happened was they left the building wounded and naked because the spirit within the man overcame the seven men. One of the most abused scriptures by spirit-filled believers is Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. Verily I say unto you, whosoever, whatsoever you shall bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven it goes on to say again i say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask it shall be done for them of my father which is in heaven and then it goes on to say for where two or three are gathered in my name there i am in the midst of them I want to say this very, very clearly so you could hear me. 
Heaven's authority is available. It is ready for use. But don't think for one minute. Don't think for one minute that authority that is not attached to the level, uh, that authority is not attached to the level of one's submission, devotion, and consecration. Just ask the centurion soldier in Matthew chapter 8 who impressed Jesus with his great faith. When the centurion came on behalf of his servant, he said unto Jesus, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Where did he get such a paradigm, such an idea, such a thought. He tells us in verse 9, he says, For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this man, Go, and he goes. To another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The level of authority in which we walk is directly correlated to the level of submission that we are under. When I choose, oh praise and bless God, when I choose to live my life fully consecrated to the Lord, when I choose to obey the word of God, when I choose, listen, hear me, when I choose to abandon, get your spirit right. When I choose to abandon the world's fashions and dictates and stop being conformed to the world, and I choose rather to be transformed by his word. Hear me, church. Listen, your devotion is important. Whether or not you wake up and spend time in the presence of God and hear the word of God, it's important. It's not magic, folks. It's not a card trick. We don't get to just wake up in the middle of the night and our baby's crying with a high fever and we haven't spent any time with God ever. We are not submitted to authority in our lives. We're not submitted to the word of God. We're not living right. We're not paying our tithes. We're not walking in the spirit. And somehow like a magic trick we pull out of our pocket, we think that God has to do what we say because we call on his name. God is not subject to me. And if perchance, if perchance something does happen when I call on his name and I have no consecration and no devotion and no submission, it's not because of me. It's because of his mercy. It's because of his grace. Oh, hallelujah. Would you lift your hands all over this place? Let's talk to the Lord. Talk to the Lord right now. Would you close your eyes? Lift up your hands and just talk to him, Jesus. We submit our lives to you.
Hallelujah. Something begins to happen and something begins to change when our lives are brought under his authority. The authority of his word, the authority of his spirit, the authority of the government that he places over our lives. Something begins to transform in us. And listen, when your obedience is fulfilled, like Romans says, when your obedience is fulfilled, you will be ready and equipped and empowered to take revenge on all disobedience. When your heart is right with God, listen, you could walk with a confidence you couldn't walk with any time previously. I've had several I've had several vivid dreams here recently. I don't attribute almost any of them to to the spirit. Maybe I should. I'm kind of of the mindset that my default a dream is a dream. Like Jeremiah says, sometimes a dream is just a dream. It's just your mind not shutting off. But I do remember one particular dream. I was on this large cruise ship. And I was going from level to level, and I was encountering demon-possessed individuals that were trying to strike fear and intimidation against me. And I felt no fear. I felt authority. Listen, we cannot think that we're going to win the battle if we are not winning the battle. We cannot fool ourselves like Ezekiel and Jeremiah had battles with false prophets that would tell the people, peace, peace, don't worry, nothing's going to happen, all is good, you don't have to be afraid. But Jeremiah and Ezekiel would prophesy that if they don't change your life, that there is judgment coming down the road. God has power and God has desire to work through our lives. God wants to work through your life. You don't have to live in a constant state of confusion and frustration where you're not sure of your salvation. God wants you to walk in an assurance, a blessed assurance that Jesus is yours, that you have been washed in the blood and filled with the Spirit. In closing, Today, I'm here to persuade you that we must make God. We must make God. I know that man has not made God or invented him. And I know that we cannot make God do something. But we can make God. Hear me out. Psalm 91 is a beautiful psalm. Is it not? Psalm 91 is a beautiful psalm. If you're not familiar with it, you ought to become familiar with it. In verse 1, he starts off. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The Lord is speaking through a man to others. If we could compare it even just to this setting right here. It is one child of God encouraging other children of God. And the psalmist says, 
He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, speaking to others. But then the tone changes in verse 2. And we find that the psalm says in verse 2, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. Do you notice the difference? In one, the psalmist is speaking to someone. In the next verse, the psalmist is speaking to himself. In the third verse, he's speaking to others, and he says, Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flies by day, nor for the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with your eyes, you will behold and see the reward of the wicked. And now we're at verse 9. The psalmist is still speaking. The psalmist is encouraging someone. As I was speaking to Brother Perry, I'm sharing all of this. And I look at Brother Alex Perry, and I get to verse 9. And I say, because you have made the Lord. And if you're looking at the verse in front of you, what does it say? Which is my refuge, even the most high, thy habitation. I don't know what it is, but I love just the back and forth in this one verse of Scripture. Because the psalmist, he is speaking to an audience. And as as though I would be speaking to Brother Perry. And I would say to Brother Perry, because you have made the Lord. And then I'm interrupted. I'm interrupted. Not by anybody else, but my own thoughts. I'm telling Brother Perry, because you have made the Lord. And when I say the Lord. I'm interrupted in my thoughts and I say, which is my refuge given the most high? It's a beautiful, just this pause, this hesitation. You've made the Lord. And when I hear that name, when I hear that word Lord, it brings me back to myself. And in just this spontaneous praise, I say, he is my refuge even the most high. There is a certain sort of persuasion that happens. Hear me. There's a certain sort of persuasion that happens when you are trying to witness to someone, when you are trying to encourage someone. Hear me out right now. This is a word for someone here today. When you are trying to speak life into somebody else and tell them, listen, because you have made the Lord, and in the middle of your testimony, in the middle of your encouraging, in the middle of your instruction to someone, you've got to pause and say, God is my refuge. God is my strength. God is my tower. What's my point? My, my, my point is this. My point is this. My point is this. 
is that, listen, you're far more convincing to get someone to be born again, to get someone to come into a relationship with God when you yourself are able to share the testimony. He's my refuge. Listen, you want to make him your refuge because I know what it's like to make him your refuge. Listen, you want to trust in the Lord because I know what it's like to trust in the Lord. And he has never failed me. He has never forsaken me. He's my refuge. But he goes on and he says, because you have made the Lord. But this is a different context than what we started out with. This is not making the Lord as though he's a figment of the imagination. This is not making the Lord as though you're twisting his arm to get him to do something. No, 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 no. This context is different. Because you have made the Lord your habitation. Because you have made God your dwelling place. Because God has become your house. He has become where you live at, where you stay at, where you find peace at, where you find strength that because that is what God has become to you. Then he goes on. Because you've done this. Because you have made the Lord your habitation. No evil will befall thee. No plague shall come to you. Angels will be given charge to keep you in all your ways. They'll bear you up even when you go to stub your toe against a stone. You'll tread on the lion. You'll tread on the adder. On the young lion. On the dragon. You'll trample them under feet. I'll tell you what, if that doesn't make you want to make the Lord your dwelling place, your habitation, your living, your house, I don't know what will. Did you pick up what it said in verse 13? When you make God where you live at, when you make God your dwelling place, he said you're going to be able to tread on the lion and on the adder, which is a serpent. He said whether the devil or the enemy comes at you like a roaring lion or like a snake in the garden, you're able to tread on top of him. He said even if he comes at you like a young lion with power, and with strength and with a roar or if he comes to you like the dragon in the book of revelation you will put him under your feet someone clap your hands to the lord and give him praise the back and forth. I love the back and forth between the psalmist and his audience, whether it's one or many, how he's going back and forth. He's encouraging a brother in Christ. He's encouraging a brother in the Lord. He's encouraging the people of God. And how many knows that it would do us well to, to share some encouragement, to share some encouragement. But what do we do? What, what's the first thing we do? How's it going? You're just hanging in there. But what if we start speaking some words of affirmation, some words of encouragement, some testimonies, and say, listen, God's going to bring us through this. There's no doubt in my mind God's going to walk us through this valley. God's going to keep us through this storm. So there's this encouragement. Hear me now. I'm closing. There's this encouragement. There's this back and forth. The psalmist is saying the Lord is our habitation. And then he interjects even just his self-declarations. God is my refuge. God is my strength. God is with me. 
And he says, when you make him your dwelling place, he's going to keep you. His angels are going to keep you. Their angels of heaven are going to work on your behalf. Now watch this. It's one child of God with another encouraging one another. Until, until the last three verses. And the, the speaker completely changes. It's no longer the psalmist that is speaking anymore. And whether it was a voice from heaven or a word of inspiration through the psalmist that came forth as a word from the Lord, nonetheless, it was God's voice that spoke the last three verses. Why? Because two people got together and they agreed on something. And God interjected in verse 14, 15, and 16. Not the psalmist speaking here. It's God himself. And he says, because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him. I will honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Hallelujah, stand to your feet, stand to your feet. There is an agreement. There is a testimony. There is a declaration of truth that is happening in Psalm 91 that God cannot ignore, but God desires to show up and to confirm his word with a direct rhema word, with a word from heaven that cannot be denied and cannot be ignored. God says, you set your love on me. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Be silent for just a moment. Be silent for just a moment. Close your eyes all over this place. When you have poured your devotion into the Lord and you have been faithful to him, hear the voice of the Lord speaking back to you. Because you have set your love on me. Therefore, I will deliver you. I will set you on high because you have known my name. You shall call on me and I will answer you. I will be with you in trouble. I will deliver you. I will honor you. I will honor you with long life. I'll satisfy you. I will show you my salvation. Now receive that. Receive it right now from the Lord. Begin to thank Him for it. Respond to the Word. Respond to the Word. Huh? Glory to God. We love you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. We honor you, Jesus. Now's the time to lift your voice and shout.
Do you see it? You don't have to make God do anything. He wants to work. He wants to love you. He wants to elevate you. He wants to bless you. Just keep pouring your love on him. Keep on following him. Keep on trusting in him. Keep on testifying and being a witness for him. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. We need to take some time and praise the Lord right now. We need to take some time and worship the Lord in this place right now. We love you, Lord. We honor you, Jesus. We worship you. I dare you. I dare you today. I challenge you. I command you in the fear of the Lord to make God, to make God. Make him your dwelling place. Make him your savior. Make him your Lord. Make him your king. Make him your provider. Make him your doctor. Make him your counselor. Make him your strong tower. It's your decision. Nobody can make it for you. You gotta make up your mind and make God what he wants to be in your life. Hallelujah. Your space is your altar. Whether you need to kneel down, remain standing, whether you want to sit down, I believe it would be in order to take the next five or ten minutes and just allow a space of time for you and I to respond to the word of the Lord. We have received a word from God. Now it's time that we receive it. We apply it. We seal it in our hearts with prayer. We seal it in the spirit. Go ahead. Begin to lift up your voice.